The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Wind shear, wind shear, wind shear. Caution, terrain, caution, terrain. Too low, terrain, too low, terrain. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 5 of Squawk Ident, recorded on October 23, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, we'll dive into the last trip I just finished a few days ago. It was a wonderful two-day trip that did not have a red eye on either side of it. Now, when you're based in the Los Angeles area, red eyes are quite the norm. And it was quite the treat to have a two-day trip that did not touch one of those. Also, we're going to look at commuting 101. Uh, as part of uh, airline career, especially at the beginning of it, you can expect to commute unless you're fortunate enough to live in base. As I've spoken about in previous episodes, commuting is definitely something you should know a little bit about. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the do's and the don'ts of commuting. We have a few good stories about that as well. And in a segment called There We Were, we're going to talk about Snowzilla. That was February of 2011, where Chicago experienced as much as two feet of snow and blizzard conditions with winds of over 60 miles an hour. And yes, I was there. All that and more on this episode of Squawk Ident. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. It has been just an absolute delight to be able to produce Squawk Ident, the podcast. I've received quite a bit of feedback in the past few weeks, and all of it has been very positive. So I thank you very much for tuning in and listening. Make sure that you don't forget to subscribe to Squawk Ident so you can get the latest in episodes as soon as they become available. So let's go on with the show here. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was this trip that I just finished a few days ago. It was a really cool trip. Uh, As I mentioned in the opener, it was a two-day trip that didn't have any late night or red eye flying in it, which is is really considered a relatively senior trip. And I'm very fortunate that at this point in my career, I'm starting to see a trip here and there that has these kind of great qualities in it. The small downside was that it started at 11.45 in the morning, which meant I had to be at the airport somewhere around 10 a.m. And 
Of course, being a weekday, that meant a little bit of LA traffic. Now, it could be worse. The trip that I'm actually going to start tomorrow starts at 9 a.m., meaning my sign-in is at 9 a.m., which means early morning a.m. LA traffic. And that is not something that I would wish upon my worst enemy. That is one of the downsides of living in Southern California. But we are going to dive into more of that on the next episode. So let's talk about this two-day trip I took. It started out, like I said, around 1145, and it was one leg to Lahui, which is on the beautiful island of Kauai. Now, it was the first time flying with this captain that I flew with, and he was a pretty outstanding guy. And one of the funniest things that happened was when I met my flight attendant crew. So we got on the airplane and we all kind of said hello and introduced ourselves and just kind of to break the ice. I always try to kind of uh, give a little, uh, not a joke, but kind of a funny anecdote, break the ice. And what happened was I introduced myself to everyone. And when I was getting ready to do the walk around, I had my my uh, gear ready to go. And as I'm walking off the airplane, uh, my number one flight attendant asked me, Hey, can I get you anything, uh, while, you know, for the trip? And I said, well, no, I'm okay. I'll, uh, I'll just wait until it's a real inopportune time. And you're very busy in the middle of a bunch of stuff. And I'll ask you for something pretty ridiculous and obnoxious and we'll go from there. And, you know, usually that gets a laugh or uh, some kind of smart remark. And the smart remark that I got kind of threw me for a surprise. Uh, she looked at me and said, well, that's a good way to get some spit in your food. And I just, I had a really nervous, loud laugh. And I was just, okay. And I looked at her and I said, well, no, I have no intention of swapping spit with you today. So uh, I'll, I'll let that one go. And we both laughed a little bit, but it broke the ice and we got along relatively well after that. So I did the walk around and when I came back, uh, you know, she's still kind of smiling about that. And we went off uh, doing our pre-flight duties and, and did the trip as normal. So uh, when I got to Lahui, uh, about five and a half hours in route, and here it is uh, late afternoon Hawaii time, and I'm on the curb waiting for the hotel van. Now, waiting for the hotel van is a topic that we can really dive into on a future show because it is a common bane and pain of most flight crews when the hotel van or the transportation service is not there. Now, some people that maybe are not in the industry might think, well, why? I mean, are you guys really that snobby? I mean, can't wait a few minutes? Well, let me break it down just real briefly. You've been flying all day. You're exhausted, you're tired, or even if you're not, you've been on duty for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours, whatever it is. And the only thing you really want to do is go and get to the hotel and take off your uniform, get cleaned up, and just put your feet up for a few minutes and just have that chaos behind you. Now, when I say chaos, think about it. Most of you that have traveled have been in an airport, and it's noisy. Noise is the number one fatiguing issue 
of anyone being in a crowded space. If you remove the noise, it is not as fatiguing. There are studies that have been uh, proven that this is so. Why do you think noise-canceling headphones are so popular? And why do you think so many people wear them in busy airports or on airplanes? It's because they're reducing that noise level. So the last thing you want to do after being exposed to all this noise, having worked this many hours on duty, who knows what you know environmental conditions you were in last, and now you got to sit on a curb on a noisy, busy, um, you know, exhaust uh, curb, exhaust um, ridden curb, and you're waiting for a van that's not there. Okay, so we wait 5, 10, 15 minutes, and the van's still not there. So it's an issue. And unfortunately, it's one that's very common. So when we get to Lahui, or when we, excuse me, when we got to Lahui, we kind of looked at this and said, okay, is the van, what's going on? Are we going to take a cab here? And so we made a phone call. Turns out that they had already dispatched a cab for us. So uh, it was just my captain and I who went to the hotel. And as we were sitting there waiting for this cab to show up, I hear, hey, Tony. And I look over and I see a friend of mine that worked with me at my previous employer when I was flying for the regional. And she was a flight attendant over there. And and probably a few years before I made the transition over to Legacy Airlines, she did too. And so talk about small world, right? So we said, hello, said, how are you? And all this kind of stuff. And come to find out that, you know, she was staying at a different location than I was, which is very common as well. Uh, and so the point is, is very small industry. And, you know, you stop and think, well, man, there's a lot of airlines out there and a lot of pilots and a lot of flight crew, flight attendants. I mean, it's really not that small. Actually, it very much is because the people that you even flew with when you were just learning how to fly could be someday your chief pilot somewhere or or could be uh, your captain somewhere or one of the flight attendants that you flew with could end up being your co-pilot. So just be aware that it is a small industry and the person that you're working with today, the, the tables can be turned. So just be cognizant of that. It's a small world, never burn a bridge and always put your best foot forward in that. So back to the trip. Uh, so I saw Maggie, I said, hello. And, uh, we went off in two different directions, but it was so nice to see a familiar face. So the hotel was nice. Uh, it was a beautiful evening around 5 PM and just a wonderful temperature. There was a trickle of rain that was coming through every once in a while. And I got to share a meal uh, with some fellow hotel goers there at the local restaurant slash bar there at the hotel. And after that, I jotted down a couple ideas for this episode and retired to my room and I crashed hard. It had been a long week. We had a family event that happened a few days earlier and it was just go, 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 which anybody that knows me knows that that is the norm. So it was a nice restful evening. The next morning I had full intention of getting up and going for a run and watching the sunrise because I try to do my best to keep my body clock 
uh, on keel with what my home time is. And Hawaii is three hours behind Pacific time, so I wanted to go to bed a little earlier and wake up a little earlier. But I don't know, the conditions were just right in that hotel room. It was dark, it was cool, and I slept in until I think it was 10 a.m., which for me is like one o'clock. It was amazing. So I got up, went for my run, and felt great. It was really warm, humid conditions because it had uh, showers had gone through earlier in the evening the night before, and some of that humidity was left over. So it was a little tough to breathe, but a very, very good run. So I got back, got cleaned up, had lunch, and just about an hour or two of extra time where I just lounged around and hung out by the pool for a little bit. And then it was time to pack up and get ready to go back to LA. So a very nice two day trip. It was all business, a little bit of R and R in there. And I got back to LA with absolutely no issues. So a, a lot of you listening that are in the industry are probably going, ah, you know, God, you know, this guy's bragging over here. But let me assure you, life was not always this cush. Okay, I commuted off and on for 13 plus years and commuting is absolutely no joke. This is Commuting 101. So what's the big deal about commuting? I've had many of my friends and family ask me, so how do you get to work when you're based in Chicago, but you live in LA? How does that work? So here's the skinny of it. So for those of you that are not in the industry, commuting is an absolute normal thing. And in order to get to your base you're going to have to probably catch a flight for those of you that don't live in base. And you're like, well, why don't you just live in base? So it's, well, you know, if my base changes every few years because I'm trying to get better quality of life here or there, or an airplane uh, that I'm currently uh, typed on is no longer going to be flying out of that base or the seniority is changing, whatever the case may be, odds are I'm not going to be at that base for very long. So, it there are many different factors that would create an issue to where uh, your schedule will change, your quality of life will change, your seniority could change because of uh, you know movement within the company with aircraft or even with bases. So odds are you're not going to keep the same base for your entire career. Uh, most pilots at one point or another commute because living in the cities where the major airports are is very expensive. So you're better off in terms of financially to live somewhere where it's a little bit more affordable and then just fly into work, which is what my life was for the first half of my career. So commuting back and forth to Chicago was something I had to get used to. 
And I had quite a bit of advice from the people that were a little bit more experienced that gave me the time to explain a few things to me. And I've learned a lot of things along the way, too, about commuting. I think the most important thing to talk about is jump seat etiquette. So, wait a minute. You just said commuting. What's this jump seat? So, let's say I'm based in Chicago and I live in L.A. So, I have to get to work. So, I have to figure out what flights are going to be able to get me there on time. And I'll have to plan accordingly, drive to the airport, park in some kind of parking facility if I'm fortunate enough to where I can park in an employee lot. Uh, Great. And then the company would pay for that or reimburse me for that. Or a lot of people that um, live in areas where there's smaller airports uh, that are not based with the major airline, there are more outstations than anything else. Well, they'll have to find a long-term parking lot that the airport has set aside for uh, employees and then pay for that and then get reimbursed from the company if the company does that. So I was in a situation for many years where I had to pay out of pocket and the company uh, reimbursed me for at least a portion of that long-term parking. So I'd have to figure out, okay, I'm going to get to the parking lot, take the employee bus, get to the airport, go through security, and get to the gate on time for the, at least giving myself two chances to get to work. I'd have to make sure I can get to the first uh, flight in a reasonable amount of time. And then if the flight was full, then I could have the option if no one else was there or no one was in front of me to ride in what they call the cockpit jump seat. If there were available seats in the back and no paying customers were uh, asking for those seats and they were just going to go open, then I get the chance to sit in those seats. Now, if it's on your own metal or your own company uh, or your own company's affiliate, then those seats are yours. You just put yourself on the list. You go through the the website or the the software, the app, whatever your company uses, and you would list yourself and you could see where you are on your list. And when you get to the gate, they'll assign you a boarding card and you take your seat and there you go. When you're commuting on another carrier, then it's a little different. Now you show up to the gate, you go through whatever procedures they have and you list yourself, they check all your credentials and your security background and all that good stuff. And then you have to introduce yourself to the captain because the captain is the final authority on whether or not you can ride. And for whatever reason, they can deny you a seat in the back. They can deny you a jump seat. So it's important that you introduce yourself, say hello, you're courteous, and you ask. This was the very first point I heard as a new hire. You always ask when you're riding on another carrier, if you can ride either in the back or in the jump seat. So the interaction usually went like this. Hi, Captain. I'm Tony. I fly for a regional airline, and I would love to have a ride with you today to work, if you don't mind. Uh, Looks like they gave me a seat in the back, if that's okay with you. Here's my employee badge. Here's my pilot certificate and my medical. And usually... Nine out of 10, the captain would go, oh, yeah, welcome aboard. How's everything going over there? And you have a chit chat for a minute or two if they have the time. 
and nine out of ten they'll say oh yeah welcome aboard enjoy uh, we'll see you there and and that's how the interaction goes now if the flight is full then you're in the cockpit jump seat if they allow it and the interaction is identical hey captain how you doing i'm i'm tony how you doing uh is it right if i ride in your jump seat today it looks like the flight's going to be full and here are my credentials and again you go oh well no seat in the back okay well yeah, welcome aboard, you know, stow your bag and, and let's get to it. So that's usually how it goes. Okay, now that's not how it always goes. And some of the biggest mistakes people make, especially if they've been flying for many years and you kind of, you're used to flying on your own metal. And side note, even if you're flying on your own metal. So I fly for Legacy Airlines. If I'm trying to get to work and I'm commuting, and the only seat available is the jump seat, I still have to ask permission because at the end of the day, it's the captain's discretion always, even on your own metal, when you're in the cockpit jump seat. So if I am on a Legacy Airlines jump seat trying to get to work, Captain, you mind if I uh, ride in your jump seat today? Oh, you're one of us? Okay, let me see. Okay, fine. You know, they check your credentials. You're good to go. Nine out of ten. So what happens when things don't go as smoothly as that? Well, I'll tell you the number one mistake is assuming that that jump seat's yours. It's not. It's the captain who's flying. That's his jump seat or her jump seat. You got to ask. Uh, I can't tell you how many times people have come up into the cockpit and going, hey, captain, I'll be uh, riding up here in the jump seat. That's the only seat available. Oh, really? You usually hear. Well... Uh, who do you fly for? Oh, okay. And already there's kind of a, you're off to a bad start, you know? So the number one rule, always ask the other guy. Always ask the captain if it's okay to ride in the jump seat. Now, if you're on your own metal, you got a seat in the back, it's, it's a done deal. You don't even really have to say anything because they can look if they want to and see your name on the list and what seat you got and all that. But... In the jump seat, you always ask. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Well, I'll tell you, when things don't go so smoothly, it's usually pretty ridiculous. Let me explain. So about uh, 10, maybe nine years ago, I was a relatively senior FO at the regional airline that I used to fly for. And it was about two weeks before Christmas, a busy holiday season. And as you can imagine, those jump seats are usually full during the holiday seasons because the flights are full. So as an airline crew member, you're probably going to be in a jump seat if you're trying to do whatever, get to work, go visit your family, what have you. So I was sitting there in Chicago and a figure appeared in the cockpit, a young man wearing uh, a regular, you know, street clothes. And he says, Hey, uh, captain, how you doing? Uh, they gave me a seat in the back. I just wanted to say hello. And my captain turned around and said, Oh, uh, hi there. Uh, getting a ride he's like yeah yeah i got they uh they got me all checked out up there just catching a ride fly for uh, another regional airline 
And my captain goes, oh, great, great, good to have you. Uh, going to visit someone? And, oh, yeah, yeah, just going to see my nana, he says, uh, for Christmas. I'm getting there a little early, about a week ahead. I've got some time off, so it's going to be a nice trip. And he says, oh, yeah, that's great. Hey, well, well welcome. Uh, do you uh, happen to have any of your credentials, your badge, and your your stuff he's like well no they they checked me out up top and uh they just gave me this uh, boarding card here with the seat number on it and he goes well yeah but you you don't fly for us and i'm supposed to check your your badge and you know your uh pilot's license and your medical and stuff he goes well uh, uh captain that's a problem there i actually left all that at home and i totally forgot everything on my lanyard i have a little pouch on my lanyard has everything there and i left it all only thing i have is my driver's license and you know my wallet and the captain kind of was like well okay i'm supposed to check this stuff i mean do you have at least one of these items you have your badge at least you know or something to just says that you're you and he goes well no i i don't but they check me up there so i'm all good right he's like well you know, I, I really, I don't know what to do here because I, 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 I got to follow the rules. You gotta, you gotta have something to show me. Uh, he's like, well, I'm in the back, man. And so captain got, you know, you know thrown aback a little bit by that response. And, and he looks at me and he, and the captain looks at me and says, well, God, you know, what do you think we should do? I mean, how, how can we get around this? And I, I look at him like, well, do you have your, uh, a temporary, a schedule that, you know, you said you flew earlier today. Do you have your a printout of your schedule or do you have a, a temporary certificate? You can do that on your computer and, and you know, show us uh, something. He goes, no, I, I, no, man, I don't have any of that. He goes, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to go see my Nana. And of course this is a kind of a no, no, it's a security issue. You know, he honestly should have never made it past the gate agent. So now another figure appears and it was, uh, one of the supervisors that was observing all the flights in that area, in that zone uh, that's being boarded. And since it was cl- very close to go time, he came down and goes, everything okay, guys? Uh, all, all good to go? And, and Captain goes, oh, no, step in here. Uh, you know, this individual here, uh, you know, I'm trying to help him out and get him to go see his family, but he doesn't have any ID or any identification. I mean, he's like, what? Because why well, didn't check him in? I, let me, you know, so kind of a big deal. If you don't have an ID, I mean, you, how do you know who you work for? You know, how do we know that? So this individual got very upset very quickly. And he goes, this is bullshit. You know, and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. So now the captain gets up and they're on the jet bridge. And he's like, wait a minute, you're, you're a captain at your, you're out there. So, you know, you know, security issues here. What's, what's your deal? And he's just, the two of them start going at it. And now the supervisor is like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you're going to have to come with me. You have to come back up. You know, and the the captain gets back in the cockpit and he's visibly upset. I mean, he really felt bad. He wanted to, you know, hook up a fellow aviator and get him going where he needed to go. But he had absolutely no credentials to prove he was who he was and whatever the ball was dropped uh, at the gate area. And it was kind of a big deal. And it, it really bothered my captain because he didn't want to come off as kind of a jerk, but you know, he, he knew that there was a problem here. This just wasn't right. And so we start to talk and I said, well, you know, who's to say that 
this individual didn't get terminated from his employment hours ago. And now he's trying to just, you know, circumvent the security system and, and get a ride somewhere. And I mean, we don't know this. I mean, I hate to think that way, but, you know, it's, it's very important to, to look at security and not waver from the rules that have been set in place. And, and that kind of gave him a little bit of solace, but absolutely kind of the whole scenario kind of blew up. Uh, it got loud. It was in front of passengers. It was not good. And those are some of the things that, you know, really come out as a big no-no. You know, you got to have your paperwork in order. You got to ask and you got to be cool when it's not because the, you could burn a bridge and get, you know, blacklisted for a period of time if you're caught doing stuff against the policy or the company policy or security regulations. So, yeah, not a good situation there at all. But not having your ID is not a very common thing. I mean, this was kind of a, a unique circumstance. Uh, and through further research later that evening, I did find out that uh, the individual that was trying to get to where he was going did get there. So for whatever reason, he must have you know, went home, grabbed his paperwork, and a couple hours later made a flight. So, But what does happen quite often which is absolutely just a huge, huge no-no, is when you get a jump seater, everything's legit, everything works out okay, all the security paperwork's been checked, and now you've got a guest in your cockpit. And they are, let's just say, for whatever reason, quietly expelling gas. All right, okay, let's get down to it. They're farting, okay? Huge no-no. You're enclosed in a pressurized vessel. You can't roll down the windows. You're, you're freaking traveling at 400 or 500 miles an hour, six miles above the surface of the earth, you know, and you have airflow, sure, from the air conditioning and pneumatic system there, uh, heating and air, but, you know, and you look over when you smell it. And you look at the other pilot and you're like, did you, did you, we've been flying together for a few days and they look at you and they kind of like say, no, uh, no, 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 it wasn't me. And so then they look at you like, was it you? No, no, it wasn't me. So then, you know, usually both of you will kind of like look back at your jump seater, which is sitting behind you against the back wall. And you know, it wasn't either one of you because I mean, you both looked at each other and it's like, no. So, oh my God, guys, you know, I, we all have to kind of take care of business sometimes, but for the love of God, don't do it in the cockpit because talk about hot box. That is a fart box right there. It is nasty. Nobody wants to smell your shit. You think, oh, I'm just going to let a little one out. Just a little boop. No, no, don't do it. I, I don't do it ever. I mean... If I do, I'll say, hey, man, I got to go use the restroom. You know, how hard is that? It's not hard. Just get out, go into the lab, do what you got to do. But don't do it in the cockpit. That is a very, 
very common thing. I can remember one time we had a guy who, he was, you know, poor guy. He was just trying to get home after a long trip and he sits in the jump seat. Everything's good to go. We take off. We're at cruise altitude. And I look back and this guy is dead asleep. He is out, and which is very common. I mean, these guys are tired, you know, they get the altitude and they pass out. And this guy was passed out and just had his feet up on the pedestal and just kind of snoring away, breathing heavy. And all of a sudden we hear this just nasty fart and we both like, holy crap. The guy woke himself up. He woke himself up. Oh God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) We all laugh so hard. I'm like, oh man, dude. So, okay. Oxygen mask on. All right. You know, open all the vents. Oh my God. This is bad. Oh Jesus. So it happens. It happens, but you know, just a big no-no. Absolute rule number two: don't fart in the cockpit. But not every experience I've had while commuting jump seating myself have been uh, negative. Um, I actually learned so very much my first few years commuting every week back and forth because uh, I'd say about 50% of the time I had to sit in the jump seat. Now, as a regional pilot at the time, I spent a lot of time commuting on mainline. And depending on which flight I took, I was either in the jump seat of uh, another carrier's 75 or Airbus A321, uh, or I was on our carrier or our partner carrier, the Legacy Airline, uh, and I'd be in the jump seat of a 73, an MD80, an Airbus, uh, even a 787. Uh, even once had the privilege of sitting in the jump seat on a United 747 before they all got retired. So some amazing, amazing experiences, hundreds of hours sitting in the jump seat, watching, observing, watching flows, watching how they do checklists. And I found out a lot of things. Most importantly, I found out that it doesn't matter what level of aviator you are, whether you're just starting out at a regional airline or you have been flying for a legacy carrier for 40 years, it doesn't matter. All pilots make mistakes. All pilots uh, have a certain way of doing checklists and running through procedures. And for the most part, we're pretty much uniform in the way we do things. Uh, But hey, we're all human as well. So I used to think that flying or commuting to work made me a better aviator. Now, I am of the belief that commuting for all those years with hundreds of hours observing in the cockpit because I had to commuting back and forth to Chicago, I got to tell you, I've learned more from watching guys and gals take care of business up there than I probably have by studying or reading about things. And the great opportunities that I've seen them run through emergencies. I've seen uh, one of my favorite, absolute favorite. I was just coming out of the schoolhouse uh, 
which was, you know, my recurrent training uh, back in Dallas. And I had to catch a ride home on a triple seven. And the only seat available was the cockpit jump seat. I was like, yeah, I haven't been in a triple seven before in the jump seat. That, that'd be a great opportunity. Sure. So I, I was able to get the jump seat. And as we're getting to know each other, as we're at cruise altitude, the captain and the first officer are telling me how they usually don't fly during the day. And this is the first time they've flown with the sun out over the United States and in months, if not years. And, uh, it was a pretty good crew. The captain was uh, a couple of years from retirement. Uh, first officer, she was very experienced with uh, a lot of years in the right seat. And, you know, we, we were just kind of going over some stories here and there. And, and all of a sudden, the flight attendant uh, called using the intercom and said, Hey, captain, we have a uh, passenger that's having a heart attack. We have a doctor on board who is... Uh, checking her out and uh, she's traveling with her family and we uh, are going to administer the uh, AED and the captain said, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, give me more information as soon as you can. So she came back uh, not even a minute later and said, yep, the doctor says she's stable. However, he recommends that we land at the nearest uh, available airport. So, okay. Emergency declaration. Uh, was declared, and we started to proceed to the nearest available airport. And what I witnessed was one of the greatest learning experiences for me, and has helped me out over the years. The captain immediately uh, handed the aircraft over to his first officer. She assumed the control of the aircraft and ATC um, radio communications. Uh, but that was after the captain declared the medical emergency and indicated that the nearest suitable airport uh, was going to be Albuquerque, New Mexico. So uh, they gave us direct to Albuquerque. They gave us a descent clearance. And he handed the aircraft over to her and started to type in all the navigation uh, information in the flight management system. Uh, meanwhile, he was you know passing papers back to me. Uh, I was pulling things off the printer, all the, the dispatchers, uh, notifications. I was pulling them off the printer, handing them to him, trying to help wherever I could without getting in the way. And, uh, he also uh, made a couple of PAs to the passenger, letting them know what was going on. And as he was talking to the passengers, we started our descent. We're just, you know, going straight to the airport and a message comes through on the printer, and I look at it, read it right away, and I kind of tapped the captain as he was giving his PA, because the message was very urgent. It said, do not land at Albuquerque. We don't have the numbers for Albuquerque with a 777. If you land there, you're going to get stuck there. You can't land there. There's another destination that's just a couple more minutes down the road for you from your current position, which is Phoenix. And so Phoenix, you can land there and you've got performance numbers to take off again. And they've got the medical facilities, everything standing by. So the captain goes, Oh, okay. Change the destination. So uh, from our present position, it, it didn't add more than a few minutes. And so he set all that up. And when he was ready, he reassumed command of the aircraft. 
and watching the coordination happening between the crew members, between the captain and the cabin crew, between ATC and the captain and the first officer, it just, it was a wonderful experience and it got all of our hearts racing. This captain commanded this triple seven like it was a Cessna 172. He brought that thing in, he was just screaming down, went to flight idle, dropped the flaps, the slats, the gear, all in perfect synchronicity. And we touched down right at the aiming point markers. As we turned off the runway, they gave us taxi instructions to park into our alley. At the same time, the first officer brought up the operations frequency, notified them that we were on the ground and we were heading to a gate. The operations manager got on the radio and said, no, don't park at a gate. Our only tow bar for a 777 is broken. We have to find another place to park. You will bring stairs to you and paramedics are standing by. So the captain communicated that with air traffic control and air traffic controller said, okay, fine. Park in front of the fire station. And the captain said, okay. So he commanded the aircraft and right before he pulled into the area that they gave him clearance to park, he stopped the aircraft and asked, is the asphalt in front of the fire station certified for the weight of a 777? And there was silence for a moment. And the air traffic controller said, you know what? I don't think so. You know, just you're on the taxiway. Just go ahead and shut down right there. We're going to have the fire truck stairs brought to you. And we'll handle the situation on the taxiway. We're shutting down this side of the airport. So the south side of Phoenix Sky Harbor was shut down while they brought the stairs up, opened the door. The passenger and her family left. They, the paramedics took them and escorted them to the hospital. Meanwhile, the station manager brought paperwork. The fuel truck was already hooked up to the aircraft got the fuel back up to the required amount, the paperwork all handled, the first officer already putting in the flight plan from our current airport to our final destination, which was Los Angeles. And the entire turnaround, including the captain getting out of his seat, standing in the galley and making a PA to all his passengers, took less than 20 minutes. We were back up in the air and only about 40 minutes and we were in Los Angeles. It was one of the most exciting experiences while sitting in the jump seat that I was able to witness. I felt a connection with that crew. The captain thanked me for the help that I had, even though it was a very small, minute portion of the whole situation. But I tell you, what I experienced that day what I took away from it, seeing how cool everybody stayed under the pressure and quick on their feet to make sure that every decision was made together, uh, captain and first officer and the cabin crew and the flight deck crew all working together. It just was a beautiful thing and an experience that I could never have imagined if I didn't actually live through it.
So there's so much that can be learned from sitting in a jump seat commuting. And I really think that every aviator should experience that, should experience some time commuting, even if you live in base. You know, maybe instead of the $500 cheeseburger is what they call in general aviation when you hop into a Cessna, fly to an airport 200 miles away, land, have a cheeseburger that's super expensive, and then fly all the way back. And at the end of it all, it costs $500 for the aircraft rental and the fuel and everything. So, but it was one of the great ways to build time and the general aviation world. In the airline world, I think, hey, you got a couple of days off, list yourself for a, a jump seat on a full flight, go somewhere, spend the day, go to Six Flags, I don't know, do something, and then grab the jump seat and come back. You know, give yourself a couple opportunities to make sure you can. It's it just, it's so awesome to sit in the jump seat and you learn so much. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a major airline jump seat or a heavy aircraft. Even in the regional airplanes, I mean, there's a lot to learn, a lot to see, a lot to experience. So with the holidays fast approaching, as I mentioned earlier, jump seating is going to get crowded. And we've talked about commuting horror stories before with, you know, more pilots than there are jump seats available. Uh, And the holidays are the time of year for these kind of stories, unfortunately, to come to fruition. So as the holidays approach, be ready. These kind of experiences can really flip your schedule around and cause you to miss a flight or two. I can remember one time, probably 10 years ago, maybe more, I just finished a long four-day trip in Chicago and I had to catch a ride back home. At the time, I was living in Seattle. And the next available flight was a United flight. So I, I booked it over. I, you know, I dropped my kit bag in the kit bag room. Okay. Again, I'm dating myself. I know. So I leave my kit bag in the kit bag room and I take my overnight bag and I book it over to the United terminal, which for those of you that are familiar with Chicago, it is a good mile, maybe even a mile and a half to get from one side of the Chicago O'Hare airport to two terminals over to the United side, which included the whole escalator tunnel under the uh, ramp area. So here I go all the way to the other side of the airport and I get the jump seat on a 757. So I introduce myself. I say, Captain, uh, hi, thanks. Uh, my name's Tony. I work for regional airline and I, you know, if I can get a ride home, that would be great. You know, here's my credentials. And he says, Oh yeah, welcome aboard. Yeah, no problem. Glad to have you. You know, he's like, well, you know, there's some thunderstorms in the area. I, I, I think we have a, an edict time, but, uh, you know, we'll get you there. We'll get you there. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. He's like, I'll make yourself comfortable. And, uh, you know, you know, don't worry about it. It's all good. I said, Oh, thank you. So I strap myself in, we push off the gate, we're taxing out. And I noticed that there's a really long 
conga line of aircraft waiting to take off. They're using only two runways instead of the usual three. So this is creating, you know, long delays and backups. And as the captain mentioned earlier, you know, it was going to be a while. So I was just so tired. And so I put my head against, you know, one of the, the panels back there, not very comfortable at all, but I just, I was so tired. I didn't care. I fell asleep and I was out. I was out for a long time. And I think about an hour and a half later, at least that's what they tell me, about an hour and a half later, I wake up and we're still on the ground in Chicago. There's about 25 airplanes in front of us to make it to the runway. Both engines are shut down. The APU is humming. The air conditioning packs are on. And I was just, I woke up and I'm batting my eyes. I look at the guy and I'm like, like, oh my God, are, are we still? Still on the ground in Chicago. He's like, oh, both the captain and the first officer are like, man, dude, you were out. You were breathing so heavy. We we felt bad, you know, for you. you obviously, you're really tired. We were up here, we're like, we we're whispering and trying not to make too much noise for you. I was like, oh, guys, you didn't have to do that. Thanks, man. I, I'm so, I'm sorry I fell asleep. I was just so tired. He was like, he's like, you must have had a rough week. I said, yeah, actually, I have had a, you know, long week and, you know, thunderstorm delays and all that. And he's like, oh, man, I hear you. He's like, well, hopefully, you know, we'll get out of here pretty soon, but you know, we haven't gone anywhere yet. It's been uh, just about two hours since we pushed off the gate. It's like, oh crap. You know, mind you, this was before the whole passenger bill of rights movement that created the three hour rule. For those of you who are not familiar, the three hour rule is a law that was put into place after uh, quite a few aircraft one year had these long tarmac delays. We're talking four or five hours. And so now the three-hour rule is if you don't have the opportunity to deplane, the uh, FAA could fine the airline uh, a lot of money. I don't want to give you an exact number because I'm not sure exactly the amount, but it comes up to a lot of money per passenger. And, you know, an airplane full of people, especially 200 people, it could be in the millions of, of fines. So after two hours, we're already like, okay, it's been two hours. If we can't be airborne in the next, you know, 30 minutes, we're going to start looking at going back and trying to get a gate and have people give people the opportunity to get off the airplane. So this wasn't around back then. So it took a good two and a half, almost three hours before we, we got off the ground in Chicago that day. And then of course, you know, another four and a half hours flying time to get to Seattle. And, uh, yeah, it was a very, very long day. And the one time I probably conked out before we even took off. So commuting can be hard, especially after a very long sequence from the line. So earlier in the broadcast, I mentioned Snowzilla. Now, I'm going to take you back to February 1st and 2nd of 2011. There was a winter storm that they dubbed Snowpocalypse or Snowzilla. And it ended up being coined as Snowmageddon, 
What happened was a winter storm created a nor'easter style event over the Chicago metropolitan area. This winter storm actually migrated east and northeast towards Canada and New York. And I was flying a four-day sequence. And all week, my captain and I were discussing when we were going to finish, what's the weather looking like, and is it going to affect us? And all the indicators that we had up to that point, whether it was checking the NOAA website, whether it was checking the Weather Channel information, or even the news affiliates, uh, it all looked like it wasn't going to hit the Chicago area until later in the evening on our last day of the trip. And our trip was supposed to finish up in the afternoon. So we were timing it just right. Okay, I'm going to catch this flight to get home, and that's going to give me a two-hour break before the, the winter storm comes and shuts it all down. And so you can imagine the flight crews, even the passengers, were talking about this event uh, to the days up to the point where it happened. And I can remember my last turn on that trip was a Toronto turn. So it was Chicago to Toronto and then back. And, you know, we were checking the weather in route. We're pulling up, uh, you know, tasks, the terminal area forecasts and, and everything. And as soon as we landed in Toronto, the gate agent came down and said, okay, guys, you're canceled. And we're like, what, what? really? It's like, yeah, you're canceled. Chicago's being hit. Uh, the next flight is still going on, but you're going to be deadheading on that one. And I need you guys to get your stuff, go through customs and then re-enter customs coming back and go through TSA. And you got to be back here at this gate for the next flight. Cause right now you're deadheading on the next flight and you only have about 45 minutes to do that, which is not enough time to go through two customs, both the U.S. and Canadian, and go through their TSA, their version of TSA. So we booked it. We packed up our stuff, and we're like, oh, I'm not getting stuck here. This is ridiculous. So we we went through customs. They actually escorted us to the front. We went through the crew portal. We, you know, We went through the customs, coming back, back through security. Gate agent was waiting for us, walked us over to the gate, and as soon as we got there, the other agent goes, oh, no, they canceled. There's nothing coming in today. We're done. And our captain and I and my flight attendant were like, what? You know, seriously? And they're like, yeah, you guys are going out in two days. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. We're stuck here for two days? What's going on? It's not even, you know, it's snowing right here right now. It's like, well, you know, Chicago's completely shut down. And, you know, because of that weather, they've, you know, predetermined uh, that this many cancellations were in effect. And I mean, that's it. And so my captain goes, well, you know, I could probably just catch a flight somewhere else, you know, and, and then, you know, make it home on my own. He goes, but, uh, you know, what's the use? I'm, I'm stuck here anyways. We'll just go to the hotel for a few days. It's fine. He goes, I might try to get out tomorrow. I was like, okay. So, you know, we agreed. We were just going to go to the hotel. Uh, and so we check in. And the next day, it starts to drag the Snowageddon uh, reach out to Toronto. And we were stuck there in the hotel for two days. And my captain and flight attendant, 
I lost track of them. This is before, you know, texting and, and all this stuff was so popular. Now, you, you know, you can even look people up uh, on social media and go, hey, what you doing? Are you, you stuck here or whatever? But that wasn't the case. So I was like, okay. So I put on everything I packed with me, everything. You know, I had jeans and running shoes, uh, sweaters and a leather jacket. I mean, I was, I was wearing everything, a beanie, leather gloves. I go downstairs. I'm like, Hey, can someone take me over to the mall across the street? It was literally, there was like a, a freeway overpass and it was right on the other side of the freeway. And I'll go to the food court, walk around the mall. I mean, what am I going to do? Sit in my hotel room. Uh, you know, so much, you know, French television that you can watch. And then it's like, okay. So, and the van driver goes, Oh no, 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 I cannot take you. And I said, what, wait, what? Well, why not? Well, not just like this. I'm like, I'm wearing everything I have. I'm fine. I've got, you know, I got my beanie. I got, I've got my gloves. I'm good. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. The roads, they may shut down and then you'll be stuck there and there's no way for you to get back. I'm sorry. I will not take you. Uh, seriously? I mean, he's like, no, no, I cannot do it. I'm sorry. They're going to shut the roads. It's like, well, fine. I guess I'm, I'm at the mercy of this transportation here. And, and it was snowing really bad. So, so I ended up uh, going into the hotel restaurant, which in Canada, if you eat at a hotel restaurant, on top of the sales tax, they charge you what they call a hospitality tax. So, you know, you're you're adding another 20% to the bill just for eating at a restaurant because, hey, why not? So I went in there and, you know, young FO, you know, not making much money. I, I talked to the bartender because that was the restaurant slash bar. And he goes, oh, man, don't worry. Uh, I got a special for you. Beef ribs. Uh, a plate of beef ribs for like $7. No problem. For you, I take care of you. Your flight crew, I take care of you. I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty good, actually. So uh, I'll, take a, I'll take a good IPA and a plate of those uh, beef ribs. I shit you not. When they brought that plate of beef ribs out, it was like watching that brontosaurus rack from the Flintstones being brought out and plopped down in front of Fred Flintstone. Every eye in that place was looking at this giant pizza tin full of beef ribs, a mountain of them. And they're like, whoa, man, what big party ordered those? And he plops them right down in front of me. And he's like, oh, enjoy. You can, whatever you don't eat, take it to your room. I'll bring you some boxes. I'm like, oh my God, seriously. I mean, I had ribs, ribs, and more ribs, and some beer, and I was just full and happy, and took it back to my room, and sure enough, I had ribs later that night for a late night snack, and I had ribs for breakfast the next day, and ribs for lunch, and yeah, after a while, it, it, it was a bit much, but yeah, I, he hooked me up. He took care of me. Long story short, I did make it home three days late, but I made it home. And when I saw the condition Chicago was in on the news, it was the most snowfall in 24 hours I had seen in a long time, if not ever. And so I survived snow cop, snow apocalypse, snow again, snowzilla. Uh, I did get stuck. I got stuck in Canada. Not a big deal. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, uh, it turned out okay. I survived. (music) 
So the last segment of this episode I'd like to talk about is something that I've been asked about quite a bit over my years uh, as an aviator. And that's what do you pack? What do you guys, you know, how, how can you be prepared? And, and I've seen people pack so little, you know, literally they bring a kit bag uh, and, and you're like, well, where's your overnight bag? It's like, well, everything I need in here, you know, clean set of uh, underwear and a clean undershirt and I'm good to go. Like, oh, really? Well, that's it? You don't leave the hotel room? I mean, nope, nope, nope. That's all I need for uh, this two-day trip. And it's like, well, what if you end up getting stuck somewhere? Like, oh, well, then I'll have to go buy clothes, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, I always do my best to try to help people out, you know, try to help the driver get bags in and out of the back of the van. You know, I just I try to help as many people as I can, especially those in the working group, uh, you know, Anywhere I can. And so I can't tell you how many times I picked up a, a crew member's bag for them. And I'm like, oh, my God, do you do you even have anything in here? I mean, what do you take? Oh, yeah, no, I got some underwear. And, you know, same story. And then there are other crew members. And I'm not going to single out any particular crew member uh, in terms of cabin crew and flight crew. But some crew members, they've got their overnight bag. And they've got another bag, like a, like a kit bag. And then they have like another bag and then they have a purse and it's like, whoa, it's like, holy crap. This is like, are you moving? You know? Um, and they packed everything, including the kitchen sink. So, so what do you pack? Now I have a system that has worked for me for close to 20 years and I always have a little bit of everything but not too much of one thing. So, you know, long pants, short pants, swim trunks, flip-flops, running shoes, running gear, uh, toiletries, of course. And I always pack for an extra day. So uh, this trip that I'm doing tomorrow is going to be a four-day trip. So I have enough to bring me through uh, the Hawaii location overnight, uh, the Phoenix location overnight, and in the event that I get in a colder area, I have uh, enough sweaters and, and whatnot uh, to kind of hold me over that I can make do. So I'm, I overpack a little bit, but I never am in a situation where I say, well, I can't really go hang out or go anywhere because it's snowing outside and I didn't bring anything for that. So I'm always kind of ready to go with what I pack. I remember one time I was giving IOE to a new captain back at the regional. Uh, and it was something that I did uh, for over five years. Uh, I was a line check airman. It was a, a wonderful experience. I really enjoy teaching and learning from, from people. And so it was a good time uh, in my career, actually probably one of the best times of my career. And I was flying with this uh, newer captain, had never been a PIC before, went through the training, did great, and we did a trip together. And with IOE, it's an initial operating experience for those of you who 
aren't familiar with the term, uh, you fly with a Czech airman. And so you're on the line and the Czech airman sitting in the right seat and, you know, they're still signing the logbook and doing all the captain stuff, but really they're monitoring you to get, make sure that, you know, you're all good to go, that your training went okay, that you're experienced enough to where you don't have any questions about the, uh, you know, the duties and responsibilities of being a captain. So I'm flying with this guy and he's doing great, he's a great pilot, good personality. And we ended up in there's a Champaign, Illinois, Champaign college town, really nice town. And as we're flying on final approach, I, you know, he was flying, he's doing a good job. I look outside for a moment and I can see down on the university campus on one of the fields, it was just a sea of classic cars. I thought, wow, they must be having a classic car show. That'd be really cool to go see on this overnight. And in the college campus was uh, literally stone's throw from our overnight hotel. So as we, you know, we landed and, you know, ran through the parking checklist. I said, Hey man, you did a great job today. Let's uh, go debrief at the hotel. And, and I'll tell you, you know, all the things that we're going to do for tomorrow. And, and then afterwards, let's go and get dinner or something and, and grab a beer. And Hey, there's a, a car show that I saw we were flying over. Maybe we can go see that. And he goes, Oh, um, well, I'll grab a bite to eat with you, but I I really didn't pack any clothes. And I'm like, wait, what? Hey, but I saw you have an overnight bag. And he's like, yeah, uh, well, my wife usually packs my bag for me, and she didn't pack any of my street clothes in there. I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You you don't you don't pack your own bag? He's like, well, you know, normally I, you know, she she throws everything in there that I need, and and. Uh, you know, I, she didn't do that this week and I, you know, I'm really kind of upset about it and, but I just don't have any street clothes. I'm like, well, it's like 90 degrees outside. Um, there's like a, a CVS or something down the street. If you want, I'll go with you. We can, you know, you buy a pair of flip flops and some shorts and a t-shirt and you're good to go. Right. He's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to spend money on that stuff. Uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just wear my uniform pants and a white t-shirt. I'll be fine. So he goes, but I, I don't want to, go to car show. Cause I'm just not dressed for it. I said, okay. So, you know, we went to dinner and it was fine. You know, we had a good time. We had a couple beers at a local place and, and, uh, and then we went back to the hotel and I thought, well, you know, I, I want to go see this car show. So, so I went, saw the car show and it was pretty cool. And I got to see some really nice classic cars right there in the heart of Illinois. And as I retired back to the hotel, I, uh, I noticed that there were a lot of these cars were starting to show up in the hotel parking lot. And then I could start to hear the burnouts that were starting. And, you know, the, from, I think the fourth floor where my hotel room was, uh, I could hear it, I could smell it. And I opened the window and looked out and there was a dirt parking lot where all these, uh, hot rods were being parked and they were doing burnouts uh, in the street and doing like a little kind of like a show off, uh, event. And of course, you know, police didn't show up, but the smell of burned rubber was penetrating through the air conditioners and in the rooms. And, and finally I was like, man, if they don't, if they don't quiet down here pretty soon, I got to get my rest. It's a really early morning start tomorrow. And sure enough, all the lights in that remote parking lot turned off right at 10 o'clock. 
normally they'd be on all night and you could hear the people sighing and, you know, having to find their way, you know, out of the lot and, and into the hotel. And the next morning I, I saw my, uh, my IOE student, the captain, and I'm like, Hey man, how'd you sleep? He's like, Oh man, I almost called the cops. You know, these guys were doing burnouts in my room filled with just this smoke and rubber. And, and he was like, I called downstairs. I'm like, you gotta do something about this. I'm gonna call the cops. You know, this is ridiculous. And like, well, you know, a lot of those guys are the local PD. <laughs> they're, they're showing off their cars, you know? So, you know, we hate to, you know, they're our patrons. And so we're kind of stuck here between a rock and a hard place. You know, we don't want to lose business. And he's like, well, you know, if we cancel the flight tomorrow, cause I'm too tired, you know, who do you think they're going to call? You know, they're going to call you. So, uh, so they ended up deciding to shut the lights off, which was a pretty smart move on the hotel's part. Uh, and it was able to, uh, you know, minimize the, uh, the noise and, and everybody kind of was able to get their rest. And, and it was, it turned out to be a positive thing. I thought it was pretty smart to, uh, to turn those lights off like that. But yeah, uh, total tangent, uh, do apologize for that. But that was the memory of that event where I flew with somebody who just forgot to pack any street clothes. So don't forget to pack street clothes guys. Uh, simply because you, you're just going to miss out unless you're the type that wants to sit in your room and watch movies you've seen a hundred times. Hey, whatever floats your boat, right? So in closing of this episode, just, Hey, for all of you listeners out there, thank you so much. Don't forget to subscribe. You know, future episodes are going to include all kinds of stories that I have collected over the years and more on just what is happening in everyday routine, not just with work, but with what's going on at home too, because being at home and juggling family life with an aviation career is one of the biggest strains on an aviator's life. And we're going to really dive into those moments and how to cope with that in future episodes. I'd like to thank all those who have reached out uh, with all the positive energy and positive thoughts. And just want to remind everyone, www.av8rtony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Osco, November, Yankee.com. There, there are links to the show, to the podcast. There are links to uh, donation sites and shopping through uh, Zazzle.com, where I have a few uh, designed gear, uh, hats, cups, stickers, and whatnot. If you'd like to be a contributor to the show, uh, I will recognize all those who decide to contribute. And you can do a one-time donation directly through the www.aviatortony.com uh, or you can do a recurring sponsorship and be a producer of the show. That can be done through the Anchor website. If you search Squawk Ident on anchor.fm, there is a link there to subscribe and to do a monthly donation everywhere from 99 cents and up. And every little bit helps. Uh, putting on a podcast uh, requires equipment and software and, you know, just a lot goes into it. So 
I do appreciate all those who have already reached out. I absolutely appreciate your support. I would also like to remind you that we are on social media. Occasionally, I have an opportunity to put a cool picture from uh, one of the sequences I'm flying, from the road, from the layovers, and it's a great way to connect through there as well. Either through Instagram or Facebook, just search Squawk Ident Podcast. I'd also like to just absolutely thank you, the listener. Having this opportunity to talk about what goes on in this career and in my daily life with uh, aviation has been a really positive experience. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be safe and take care of each other.